We read from two passages in the Bible, beginning in Matthew chapter 18. We will read a few verses here and then turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and read that entire chapter. Let us hear the word of God beginning in Matthew 18, verse 15, and reading through verse 18. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Matthew 18 is passage where Jesus himself gives instruction about Christian discipline, and here in 1 Corinthians 5, the inspired Apostle Paul gives instruction about church discipline. So we begin reading at verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, 
with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And thus far we read in the scriptures. We are up to the final question and answer of Lord's Day 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 85. Where the question states or asks, how is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church. And if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. Beloved in the Lord, we return to Lord's Day 31 to finish our consideration of the keys of the kingdom. That special spiritual power that Christ has given to his church to exercise through her appointed office bearers. The keys of the kingdom are two. Last time we looked at the first key and what we can call the main key, which is the proclamation or the preaching of the Holy Gospel. Preaching is the main key because this key is in constant use in the church of Christ. The church's main calling is to bring the word, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the word is brought, that word has a disciplining power. Jesus, at the Great Commission, commanded his disciples to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations. And the primary way that the apostles discipled people, made disciples, was by bringing the word. The word disciples. The word disciplines. The word instructs in the truth of God and of his Christ and the Christian life that is to flow out of faith in Christ. The preaching of the gospel is the main key. But today we focus on the second key. The second key that Christ has given to his church is the key of Christian discipline or church discipline. Those two terms refer to the same thing. And throughout the sermon we're going to touch on two levels or two kinds of discipline that go on in the church. There is discipline among the members mutually, a kind of informal discipline on an individual level between members of the congregation. 
And then there is the official discipline of the church that is carried out by the office bearers, particularly the elders whom Christ has entrusted this key to and who are called to, to exercise the key of discipline. And these two forms or kinds of discipline are connected and we want to see that connection. Both are very important in the life of the church. The key of Christian discipline is brought to bear when there is sin in the church, particularly sin that is not repented of. When that happens between two members individually, they are to deal with it according to Jesus' commandments in Matthew 18. And when there is sin that is not repented of, or there is sin that is gross in public, the elders become involved and are to handle that sin by the key of Christian discipline. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, last thing by way of introduction, how do we know that discipline, Christian discipline is the second key of the kingdom? That can be easily proven by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Let your mind go back to Matthew 19, where Jesus told His disciples, I give you the keys of the kingdom. And what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Recall that language being used in Matthew 16, verse 19, in connection with the keys of the kingdom. Well, we find that same language used in Matthew 18, verse 18, right after Jesus has explained the process of Christian discipline. Matthew 18, verse 18, after he has explained those things, Jesus says, what you bind on earth is bound in heaven, what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And so you compare those two passages together and it makes it crystal clear that Christian discipline is the second of the two keys of the kingdom. So let's consider now the key power of Christian discipline. Let's look first at what it is. We're going to answer that question, what is it? What is it? And then secondly, how is it exercised in the church? And finally, unto what end? What's the goal? Christian discipline can simply be defined as spiritual admonition and correction with the Word of God that is brought to an impenitent church member. That's what it is. It's spiritual admonition and correction with the Word of God which is brought to an impenitent church member. That's the first important point we want to see this morning, that Christian discipline is not something separate or entirely distinct from the Word, but really the key of Christian discipline, the second key, is a more narrow and focused application of the Word of God. The Word is the one spiritual tool that God gives His church in all of the church's work. She preaches the Word, she brings the Word, she applies the Word. That's what the church does. The church does that in her life as a body, and the church does that officially through her offices, through the ministry of the gospel, and through the eldership. And the work of the elders is to bring the word. And the work of discipline is a narrower and more focused application of the word of God to a particular individual in the congregation who is walking in sin and is refusing to turn from that sin. The Word, 
After all, the word is the only authority in the church and must be the only authority. Christian discipline may not be something carnal. It may not be coercive. It may not use physical penalties or threats of physical penalties of any sort. But it is simply the employment of the spiritual means of the word and bringing that to bear upon an individual's life and particularly upon a dark place in his life. A sin in which he is walking in. It is bringing the word to that man in those circumstances, addressing that sin and calling him to repentance and to faith in Christ. The word disciplines. Think of the very well-known passage about the Bible in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching. But then Paul goes on, for doctrine... For reproof, that is for rebuking, for admonishing, for pointing out sin. For reproof, for correction. That's discipline. Admonishing with the goal of correcting and restoring. And instruction in righteousness. Discipling someone in the way of godliness in the Christian life. The Word is the means. And that's true both on the individual level and on the official level. When a brother or a sister goes to another member of the church because there is a personal offense that exists between them, and they address that offense with the brother, they're to do so according to the Word of God. Bringing the Word. And beloved, you can do that. It's not just the office bearers who are called to bring the word. Yes, the office bearers are called to bring the word in an official way. But we are all prophets, priests, and kings under Jesus Christ. We all have the unction of the Spirit. And this is part of the the spiritual maturity of the New Testament church. That we are all able to read and understand the word. And we are all able to bring the word to one another. And apply that word. That doesn't erase the distinction of the special offices. But it does emphasize the crucial importance. We must not erase the distinction of, or or erase the reality of, the office of all believer. Which really is the fundamental office in the church. The special offices are built upon the office of all believer. And really the special offices are an official and more focused function of that office of believer. So discipline both on the individual level and on the official level when it is taken up and executed by the elders is an application of the word. In the second place, in answering the question, what is Christian discipline? It's a focused application of the word to a man who is walking impenitently in sin. In the second place, we notice that Christian discipline is an application of the word not just to anyone, but it is an application of the word to An individual confessing member of the church who is impenitent. And all of those words are important. An individual confessing member of the church who is impenitent. Individual. Discipline may only be applied to an individual person. In the church of Christ, there may not and ought not to be group discipline where a whole bunch of people are grouped together and put under discipline together. Individuals are held accountable for their own sins and their own impenitence. And the status of one member may not hang upon the repentance or impenitence of another member. Group discipline 
when it has been done wrongly in the church throughout the ages, has been unjust. An example would be the, the interdict that the Roman Catholic Pope would use as a method of discipline in the Middle Ages. The interdict was simply publishing a decree that people in a certain area, or even in an entire kingdom, were under discipline and may not partake of the sacraments until they repented. And often this was used as a coercive tool to manipulate the civil authority in that particular land to bend the knee to the Pope. But that's an example of of group discipline which is unjust. No, according to Scripture and in the Reformed conception of Christian discipline, it is always individual and must be only individual. Members, when they walk impenitently, and when it rises to the level of discipline, are disciplined for their own sins and their own sins alone. So an individual. Secondly, a confessing member Christian discipline can only be applied to a member of the church. And Paul indicates that in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13, where he says, What have I to do to judge them also that are without? And he's talking about non-members of the church. People who aren't members of the church. Paul is saying, we don't have jurisdiction over them. They're not members of the church. Discipline cannot be applied to them but to those who are within. Members of the church, now particularly confessing members, submit themselves to the oversight, the instruction, and the discipline of the church of Christ as it is carried out through her elders. Only confessing members can be barred from the Lord's Supper. Confessing members, as said a moment ago, have vowed to submit and to hear and to hearken unto the the discipline of the church. And so, it is only members and particularly confessing members that are the proper objects of church discipline. Now, for sure, a baptized member can be admonished. Or a baptized member that removes themselves from the church or does not heed the admonition of the elders, may eventually be put out by an erasure, that is, their membership is terminated in the congregation. But discipline is particularly applied to confessing members who have identified themselves with a local congregation and vowed to place themselves underneath the oversight of the elders of the church. So, discipline is individual, discipline is administered to the confessing member, but now here's the crucial part, the object of Christian discipline is the impenitent member of the church. It's impenitence that brings discipline to bear. Not simply falling into sin. If it was simply falling into sin, then you and I, we all would be under discipline quite often, wouldn't we? But discipline, official church discipline, is administered to those who walk in sin and after often being brotherly admonished, as the catechism says, refuse to recognize their errors or their wicked course of life. Impenitence. 
As one commentator on the catechism put it, it's not members who fall into a sin that are immediately put under discipline, but those who cling to their sin. And so it is the impenitent member who becomes the object of Christian discipline. Now, it's worth noting at this point that there are some cases where discipline will be administered swiftly. And this requires that we understand a very important distinction in the kinds of sins that become disciplinable in the church. There are private sins, or sins that we call private sins, and there are are sins that we call gross public sins. Private sins are sins which are not known to many. They are individual offenses between a brother and another brother in the church. They are sins which do not give public offense or are not a danger or a threat to others in the congregation. Private sins must be addressed privately following the way of Matthew 18 as Jesus describes it. But not every single sin must be addressed According to the way of Matthew 18, there are other sins, namely gross public sins, which become a matter that the church must address immediately and often become a matter of church discipline very quickly. Gross public sins are sins that are are crimes in the eyes of the state or, or sins that are widely known such that they give a very public offense. Or sins that make the sinner potentially a danger or a threat to the congregation. Sins of a public nature or a gross nature like that, the elders get involved right away. There's a public announcement to the congregation so that the facts are laid out in order to silence rumors. And in order to give people the information that they ought to know. And that becomes something that the church must take up and work with right from the get-go. And so it's a very important distinction to bear in mind. Because sometimes if a public sin is treated as a private sin, it can have very grave consequences. Public sins, gross public sins, do not have to follow be dealt with according to the way of Matthew 18. An outstanding example of that, a painful lesson that has had to be learned, is in our dealing with child sexual abuse. That is a gross public sin which must not be dealt with according to the way of Matthew 18. May not be. But must be publicly announced. And must be dealt with with official church discipline right away. And so we must bear that in mind. That in the church's carrying out of discipline, there are two levels. There are two levels or two kinds. There's the discipline of the members among each other. And then there is the official discipline that is carried out by the elders of the church. And there are two sorts of sins. There are the private sins which must be dealt with according to the way of Matthew 18. And there are gross public sins which are not to be dealt with according to Matthew 18, but become the business of the elders right away. So that, in short, is what church discipline is. Now, before we move on to look at how it is exercised, a 
couple of applications. Number one, let us remember those four words that we looked at last week that define the nature of the keys of the kingdom. That the keys of the kingdom is a stewardly power, a spiritual power, a ministerial power, and a declarative power. Those those four words need to be applied not just to the preaching of the gospel, but to Christian discipline. Stewardly. Christ is the key holder. Christ alone ultimately is the one who disciplines. He disciplines to rescue his sheep when they walk in ways of sin, when they go astray. And he uses the key of discipline to expel goats and wolves from his sheepfold who do not belong within his sheepfold. The elders are but the stewards of the keys. And that's why the catechism begins answer 85 the way it began answer 84. When according to the command of Christ, always church discipline must be exercised not according to human will or human wisdom, but strictly in accord with the word of God and the command of Christ. That means then the church should not fear to administer Christian discipline. Christ commands it. And Christ is not commanding something that is unwise. Christian discipline is part of how Christ the Good Shepherd shepherds His people. And when Christian discipline is done in harmony with God's Word, it is not something that is oppressive, but is an act of love. When it is done according to the Word of God, it is valid. As Jesus says, what is bound on earth is bound in heaven. And what is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. Because the church has stewardship of the keys of the kingdom, that means she does not infallible. And there are times when the church errs in her disciplinary work. But Christ does not err. Christ does not err. And so when discipline is done according To the word of God, we can be confident that Christ is exercising the key through that discipline. But when the church errs, erroneous discipline does not put a person outside of the kingdom. Christ is not guilty of the errors of his church when his church does err. Stewardly. Secondly, Spiritual and ministerial. We talked about that last week. How the power of the church is not a physical coercive power. But is a spiritual power and a ministerial power. It is a power employed to serve the good of God's people. Church discipline is not to be a rod. It is not the sword of the state. But it is the word of God that addresses sin and seeks to restrain and correct sin by spiritual means. God chastens His people. We must remember what it means that God chastens. When God chastens His people, He doesn't pour His fury upon them. He doesn't pour out His wrath upon them because His wrath against their sins has been borne already by Jesus Christ. Now, chastening is an expression of God's fatherly displeasure. 
And when we walk in sin against our God, we can and we do provoke Him to anger. But it is not a wrath of punishing to destroy, but it is a father's chastening to correct. And that's what church discipline is. This key of the kingdom is a tool that God uses for the correction of His people. Now when Christ uses the key of discipline to expose and to expel an unbeliever from the church who is not one of His people, then indeed it is a manifestation of His righteous wrath. But when the key of discipline is brought to bear upon a child of God who is walking wayward in sin, it's the Father's hand of chastening. Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. And so when the church exercises discipline, she must endeavor with all her heart to do so in a way that harmonizes with God's purpose in discipline. Discipline is not to be carried out in wrath and in anger. It is not to be done to get rid of a difficult person. But it is to be done in a spirit of love. That doesn't mean that discipline isn't firm. Sometimes, oftentimes, discipline must be firm. And sharp, penetrating rebuke and admonition is brought from the Word of God. But it is to gain a brother. It is an act of love. It seeks to correct and restore. It's ministerial. And thus as the church exercises discipline, she must do so not from a haughty position of self-righteousness, but from a lowly position of humility as a servant. As a servant even to that impenitent brother who is being disciplined. Finally, declarative. Remember that the church in the exercise of the keys of the kingdom, her power is not that she actually causes a person to be put out of the kingdom, but she declares. She declares through the use of the key what Jesus, the key holder, does. And that's the case with discipline. When the church administers discipline, by that key of the kingdom, The kingdom is shut. The kingdom is opened. In a declarative sense. Discipline like like preaching declares. Christ shuts the doors of the kingdom to all who persist impenitently in sin and unbelief. But Christ opens the door of the kingdom to all who believe in Him and sincerely repent. That's the message of the gospel. And discipline, as a more focused and narrow application of the word of God, makes the very same declaration, but makes it in a very direct and personal way to an individual who needs that focused application of the word in his life. Because he's walking in sin and will not turn at that time. Discipline is declarative. Second application here then is is this. Both the keys of the kingdom, but now especially the second key of the kingdom, emphasizes to us the importance and necessity of membership in a local congregation. 
by membership in a local congregation, each of us not only puts ourselves under the regular ministry of the means of grace, which we acknowledge we need, but by being members of a local congregation, we make a confession, I need the Good Shepherd to shepherd me by these means that he is, pre- he is pleased to use. By the preaching of the Holy Gospel and by the oversight of his appointed elders and the Christian discipline that they are called to administer. Being a member of the local church means you welcome that oversight. And you confess that you need it. And this is something that all of us, every single one of us, ought to recognize and confess. I am a sheep prone to stray. That's why it is spiritually dangerous and detrimental to me if I am not a member of a local congregation. Christians are not spiritual individualists or spiritual hermits. We need the body of Christ. We need our fellow brothers and sisters in the communion of the body of Christ. I need my brothers and sisters to help keep me on the straight and narrow way. I need my brothers and sisters who I'm close to in the context of Christian love to be able to approach me and say, Brother, sister, we've noticed this. Or or you've, you've said or done this and we need to correct you. According to the word of God. That mutual correction and discipline. Within the body of Christ. Is so spiritually important to us. We need that mutual accountability. In the body. And we also recognize. We need the oversight. Of the under shepherds. That Christ calls to care for. And to feed the body of Christ. Recognizing that God is pleased. To shepherd us. By their hand. That's why the Belgic Confession in Article 28 calls submitting ourselves to the teaching and discipline of the church as bowing our necks under the yoke of Christ. If you're not a member of a local church, you don't have that mutual accountability and encouragement within. The body of Christ. And you haven't submitted yourself to that yoke of Christ. The oversight of his elders which he is pleased to use for our spiritual good. So in our day and age when official church membership in a local congregation is is more and more looked at as something that's not so important. Let us stand steadfast in this. No, I belong as a member in the local congregation. That's where Christ wants me. And that's where Christ ministers to me. And I recognize my need. I need my brothers and sisters in the congregation to help me in my spiritual life. And I need the teaching and discipline of Christ's church. So that's what it is in brief. Let's move on Briefly to talk about how Christian discipline is exercised. Here again, remember the two levels or the two forms of discipline in the church of Christ. Which are distinct and related. There is the individual level. The informal discipline of members mutually among themselves. Dealing with sins and offenses according 
to Jesus' word in Matthew 18. And there is the official church discipline carried out by the whole church through her ordained elders. We're going to look at both of those and how discipline is carried out on both of those levels. First, we begin with the informal, the individual level, believer to believer. That's what Matthew 18 is especially about. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us the procedure, the the steps for addressing private sins, personal grievances and offenses that arise between members in the church. And this is so very practical because we are all sinners. And we sin against each other. We say things. We do things that offend each other. That hurt each other. That aggrieve each other. This happens. And it happens a lot. Let's be honest with ourselves and recognize that. And Jesus here in Matthew 18 tells us how to deal with these things. And how to resolve them. And when we deal with sin and personal offenses within the body of Christ Jesus' way rather than our own way. It leads to peace and reconciliation and unity and health and healing. When we try to do it our own way, we make little problems big and big problems bigger. So what is Jesus' way of dealing with sin in the body of Christ? There's three steps to it. First, Matthew 18 Verse 15. This is where it starts. If your brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. It, it, it's that simple. Go talk to your brother. Go talk to your sister in the church. If they have offended or grieved you. And it goes the other way too. If you know that your brother or your sister has a grievance against you because you've offended to them, you've offended them, don't wait for them to come to you, but you go to them. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23-24. He says, if you know you have a brother who has aught against you, go, be reconciled with your brother. And so important is this, that if you have to leave your offering at the foot of the altar, Drop it there and go. So important is reconciling with your brother that even worship can wait. Go. Go talk to your brother. Go talk to your sister. Tell him his fault. Now, what does Jesus mean there? Does Jesus mean go over and yell in his face and shake your fist at him and tell him how horrible a person he is? No. We understand that when Jesus tells us to go to our brother and tell him his fault, he is assuming we understand that he expects us to go in the way of Christian love, in humility. He expects us to apply the other passages of Scripture, such as a soft answer turns away wrath, and Telling your brother his fault in a soft and kind and humble way will also prevent wrath. Go, tell him. Explain to him his fault. What he's done wrong. 
according to the Word of God, the hurt that it's caused. But do so in the spirit of brotherly love. And if you're the one being approached, a soft answer turns away wrath. Human nature is immediately get defensive and push back. But that just makes problems bigger. Listen. Hear. Hear. Really hear your brother. Don't take the time that your brother is using to tell you his grievance to load your gun to fire back. But listen. Listen. And humbly acknowledge where you've aggrieved your brother. The first step of Matthew 18 should lead to James 5.16. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Humbly bring a grievance. Humbly hear the grievance. Humbly talk together about it. Humbly confess your faults to one another. Humbly extend forgiveness to each other. That's how reconciliation happens. That's Jesus' way and it's beautiful. And in fact, in a healthy church and among spiritually healthy Christians, this should be going on all the time. Discipline should often start and end here. This is Jesus' way of dealing with things. And it's the one way that really deals with things. So many other ways that we'd rather go. Many other ways we think would be better. Better ways to deal with it. And what we so often end up doing is throwing gasoline on fires. Ideally it will end here but it doesn't always. Perhaps the brother whom you approach is resistant. Or refuses to acknowledge. And that's where Matthew 18, 16 comes in. But if he will not hear thee, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. This is what you do if your initial attempts to address an offense are rebuffed. You don't give up. You don't run prematurely to the elders. You don't become enraged. You don't go and talk to everyone else about how horrible this person is. But with patience and with charity, you go back. You bring one or two with you as witnesses. That every word may be established so that an accurate testimony can be verified. With a view to the fact that if it doesn't end here, it might have to. Be brought to the elders. But here patience and charity is so important. Because human nature. So quickly becomes angry. Especially when my brother has done me wrong. And he won't recognize it. It's so very easy after the first time he rebuffs me. To become furious. And want to rush ahead. Patience. Charity. Love is long-suffering. Remember, that's the very first thing 1 Corinthians 13 says about love. Long-suffering. So you go back and you talk to him. You reason with him from the Scriptures. And the, two witnesses, the one or two witnesses that you bring with you can help in that regard. They can help 
bring the word to this brother who is not recognizing the wrong that he has done. You labor patiently, prayerfully, perhaps even repeatedly here at this stage. You want to gain your brother. But sometimes it becomes clearer and clearer that a man is obstinate in his sin. And that's where Matthew 18, 17 comes in. The third step of Matthew 18. And if he shall neglect to hear them, that is you and the witnesses that you've brought, tell it unto the church. Tell it unto the church doesn't mean broadcast it far and wide to all and sundry. Tell it to the church means what the catechism explains it as meaning. The bottom of page 18 in the Psalter. When they are complained of to the church or, and or here isn't saying here's the other option. It's tell the whole church or tell. It's saying this is what telling the church means to those who are thereunto appointed by the church. That is the elders, those whom Christ has charged with carrying out the work of Christian discipline. Here with grief and loving concern and not with relish. You report the matter to the consistory. Because the brother has remained obstinate. You report that you followed the steps of Matthew 18. Including going to that brother with one or two witnesses. But to no avail. You state precisely what your charge is against that impenitent brother. And it is here that that private discipline among members of the church mutually. It is here that that discipline of a private sin. Comes to the elders. And becomes the official work of the elders. This is the way that private sins must be addressed. First by Matthew 18. And if the way of Matthew 18 does not yield repentance. Then it is brought to the church to be addressed by the elders. And as Jesus goes on to say in the last part of verse 17. But if he neglect to hear the church. Let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. And the idea there is now the church begins admonishing this man. Bringing admonitions And even putting him under official church discipline. And the elders labor with him with a goal of achieving his repentance. Brief application before we look at official church discipline. This is so very important. Let that be pressed upon our hearts this morning. How important it is to practice Matthew 18 among ourselves. Let this be the default way that we handle grievances and offenses with others in the church. This is Jesus' way. This is the wise way. This is the way that leads to healing. This way is not satisfying to our sinful flesh. And often... We want what's satisfying to our sinful flesh. We want to be able to gripe. We want to be able to hold a grudge against someone. We want to be able to tell other people how horrible that other person is in the church. But that only leads to disunity, to the straining of relationships, to the driving in of wedges between brothers and sisters in the body 
of Christ. Let us be devoted and diligent in carrying out our disciplinary calling as believers. This is our calling. To address sins, offenses, and grievances as Jesus calls us to do. Confessing our faults to one another. Praying for one another that we may be healed. More quickly, the procedure for official church discipline. That is the discipline carried out for the elders. Carried out by the elders. Official church discipline comes into play when there is a private sin that could not be resolved Following the way of Matthew 18. And so it's been brought to the consistory. Or official church discipline. Comes into play. When there has been a gross public sin. That the consistory must take action on. Official church discipline. Also has three steps. One of the Bible passages that undergirds. The three steps of official church discipline is. Titus 3, chapter, or Titus 3, verse 10, where Paul says, A man that is an heretic, and now heretic there doesn't simply refer to a false teacher who is intentionally promoting false doctrine, but the literal meaning of this Greek word here is someone who willfully chooses their own way. A schismatic, a divider, a one who insists on going his own way. Most generally, an impenitent sinner. A man that is an impenitent, after the first and second admonition, reject. And so there you have the three steps of official church discipline. The first admonition, the second admonition, and then rejection, which is what we call excommunication. Very quickly, let's go through those. The first admonition is called silent censure in our midst. That's what the catechism is getting at when it refers to a man being forbidden the use of the sacraments. The elders bring admonition to this impenitent sinner. And part of that admonition is they inform him that he is barred from partaking of the Lord's Supper. This is so that the Lord's Supper is not profaned by someone presuming to come who is not examining himself and who is not sorry for his sin. And barring him from the Lord's Supper is also a focused application of the Word because the Lord's Supper is the visible Word of God. Debarment from the Lord's Supper is declaring to that man, as long as you walk impenitently in sin, you are cutting yourself off from the kingdom of God. For the Lord's Supper is the communion feast of the citizens of the kingdom. While a man is under silent censure, the the elders are to diligently labor with him, admonish him to come to repentance. The second step in our practice is the step of making public announcements. And here's where there can be a little bit of confusion. There are three public announcements that are made in the course of official discipline work. But those three public announcements are not the three steps of discipline. 
The second step of discipline contains those three announcements. So you have the first step, which is silent censure. You have the second step, which is the public announcements. And there are three of them. And you have the third step, which is excommunication. The first of those three public announcements, which is the second admonition in Titus 3.10, the first is simply an announcement that is read in church, because this concerns the whole church, that there is a member who is walking penitently in sin against this or that commandment, and the congregation is urged to pray for that brother, though the name is not yet disclosed. The church is to be involved in the work of discipline, because the whole church disciplines through the offices. Throughout this whole process, the elders are laboring, bringing admonitions. And if there is genuine repentance, at any juncture, the progress of discipline will stop. Now, that doesn't mean that discipline will be immediately lifted. There are times where a man gives evidence of being sincerely sorry for his sin. He gives a confession, a confession that appears to be very genuine. At that point, the elders will not push forward in discipline, but they might not lift it immediately because repentance needs to be demonstrated. More than just tears, but as the catechism says, promising and showing amendment of life. So, The second admonition consists of these three public announcements. The first, without a name. The second, the consistory will announce the name of the brother who is walking in sin. And this is done only with the concurrence of classes, because it's a big step. A name is going to be announced, but it's judged necessary so that the congregation can pray more directly and personally for this individual and even... Bring the word to him, brother to brother, sister to sister. Third and finally, if still there is no repentance, there will be a third announcement which sets the date when the third step of official discipline will be performed, namely excommunication. And that's the third step. Silent censure, the announcements, And if still there is no repentance, then the church has no choice but to apply what is called the extreme remedy, which is excommunication. Excommunication is putting an impenitent sinner out of the church and declaring to them that by their fruits they have shown themselves to be unconverted and unbelieving. And as long as they persist in that way, They are outside the kingdom of Christ. And with excommunication, the key is turned and the door of the kingdom is shut. But for the child of God who wanders so far, the door is never permanently locked. Because no child of God will ever be plucked from the Good Shepherd's hand, even the most wayward. And in Christian discipline, 
Christ shuts the kingdom to that wayward child. In order that he might open it again. To bring that person to repentance. And that's why the catechism ends on that hopeful, positive note. That when there is repentance. When there is repentance. And true amendment of life. The wayward sinner is received again into the bosom of the church. With joy. And it ought to be with joy. The angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner repents. So ought the assembly of God's people upon earth. And so we conclude with the goal. The goal is simply the glory of God. That's always number one. The goal is the protection of the church. And the goal is always the salvation of the sinner. Let that be held before our minds. When we follow the way of Matthew 18 with a brother or sister, it's so easy to make it all about me. Keep those goals in mind. This is for the glory of God. And this is for the good of that brother or that sister who I love. Who I love. And when official discipline is carried out by the elders, let those goals be in mind for the glory of God, for the protection of the flock. For the salvation of that person who we love. Christ uses the keys. Christ is able to work great wonders by the keys. May God grant us the grace as a church to employ His keys faithfully. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the key of discipline. We pray that Thou wilt be pleased to use it in our midst for our spiritual good. Grant us faithfulness in the use of this key. May we ever acknowledge Thee and give Thee the glory, the great works that Thou dost do. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.